All right. Good morning. Good to have everybody here this morning. And uh, I'm excited by the truth that we have in front of us this morning. But there's also a another side to this. And you can hear the joy. It's palpable. I mean, even down to the smallest little baby this morning, to the oldest of us, I won't look at anybody. Um, the, the joy is palpable. But there is there is a there is a, a warning to this as well, too. And we need to look at both sides of this message. That's what we want to do this morning. Um, there, there is a warning here as well. Okay, so let's uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless as we open His Word together and take a look at this saying from Jesus. Heavenly Father, the 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 words of those songs still ring in, in our ears. And, uh, and we do worship you and we do stand in awe of the king who would leave the glory of heaven and come and be born as a, not just as a person, but as the lowliest of persons and, and uh, be raised in an obscure little village, Nazareth. We, we know it because of the one who was raised there. Uh, it's a nothing place, really. Um, a tiny little and even even in scripture, we get little hints of that. The people look down their nose at it. But you're willing to 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 go through this and go through the humiliation of of the cross, the betrayal of Judas, and and the hatred of leaders of the nation, the misunderstanding and abandonment of of your uh, disciples and of those closest to you. Uh, even your own family members didn't believe in you. And, uh, and the song that we just sang says it so well, because he gave his everything. Uh, you spared no expense that we might be reconciled to you. And, uh, and we stand in awe of these words that we're about to look at in scripture today and of the one who says them and of the truth behind them. And I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would take these next few minutes, uh, take, take my feeble uh, words here, and that you would drive your truth home. Uh, thank you that you... You don't have to use us, but you you do. And I pray that you would uh, uh, bless this time to all of our hearts. And Father, we're mindful of the fact this morning as we celebrate here in our time zone, there are believers who are ahead of us that have already worshiped and celebrated the, the resurrection this morning on the other side of the earth. And there are those who are still yet to do so. And we just pray that as your word goes out around this world, that many lives would be touched and that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Title today, maybe, and it's Easter Sunday. Why aren't we talking about the resurrection of Jesus? We will. We'll get there. Resurrection now and later. To think of resurrection as a one time event. But what I'm going to show you from Jesus' own words to Martha right before he raised Lazarus. He says, no, actually, there are multiple resurrections. There's at least two for those who believe in him. Okay? This is not something you hear a lot of, and, and that's why I want to focus on it this morning. Uh, and, and we will tie it in with, with of course, uh, Jesus' resurrection. So if you, don't, if you have your Bible uh, and you can turn there or you can follow along on the screen, uh, we're looking this morning at, at uh, John chapter 11, okay? And uh, John chapter 11, verses 17 through 27. I think I have the same translation. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am 
the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. First uh, couple verses here, first four verses, I guess it is, set up for us what's happening, okay? This is a, uh, a week on the church calendar that traditionally we call, what week do we call this? Passion week, right? Why do we call it Passion Week? What does passion mean? It's kind of come to be corrupted, uh, not corrupted, but the language evolves and meanings of words change, okay? Passion today means something like, a, you know, I have a passion for eating, okay? It means I have a strong desire for it, right? You know, that's, that's kind of what we, what we use is, is a strong desire. But really the word actually originally meant pain, okay? We talk about the passion of Christ. We're talking about the pain of the suffering of Christ, um, and uh, this this happens in the spring, right? Uh, this is why we now. Why not in December? You know, well, because we have Christmas. Well, okay. Now the reason we have it in the spring is because on the Jewish calendar, the day of Passover happens on the 14th of Nisan, which is a, a Jewish month, and and it fluctuates a little bit, which is why it fluctuates on our calendar as well. But the point is that here we are in the spring, but the fall of the year. Okay, so think back to our fall, right? So we went through Christmas, and let's go backwards. What's after? What's before Christmas? Holidays. Yeah, Thanksgiving, right? Well, there's a Jewish holiday in between those two called Hanukkah, and uh, in chapter ten, which is the chapter right before the one we just read, right? Jesus at the very about halfway through chapter ten, he's it's called the Feast of Dedication in your Bible. Okay, but it's we know it as Hanukkah, and uh, I won't get into the whole history of it. But Jesus is there in in the temple, and he has been through almost three years, almost the complete term of his ministry. Okay, complete time. He's managed to make a lot of disciples and friends, but he's also managed to make a lot of enemies. Okay, you probably heard that in some of the narration this morning in the Kentucky. And Jesus is walking evidently with his disciples. John doesn't tell us that explicitly, but John does say that all, I witnessed all these things I'm writing about. So we know he was there. And we get some hints of the fact that his disciples were there in chapter 11, which I'll get to in a minute. Okay? So Jesus is just walking through an, an old portion of the, the temple called uh, Solomon's Colonnade. It's the only thing that was left from Solomon's original first temple that was still standing at that time. He's walking through there, and suddenly his enemies come from all around him. You may remember back uh, in the summertime and in the early fall on our calendar last year. Last year was a doozy, wasn't it? Okay. Uh, among the many, many issues that were concerning to all of us, how many of you remember all of the violence going on in cities? And, 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 and just the, <clears throat> do you ever get on YouTube and watch the videos of some of that? Some of the anger that people have for one another, somebody walking down the street with a, maybe a, a shirt or a hat or a sign that other people disagree with, and the anger that's there, right? And they surround the person, and they're antagonizing, and they're yelling at them, and they're screaming. And, and that's what happened to Jesus. Okay? It's violent. It doesn't come across as strong in the, in the English, but in, in the Greek, when his enemies surrounded him there in the temple, they were very angry. They were at that point of almost ready to attack him. Okay? That made a strong impression on the disciples. Okay? Because when we get to our chapter here, uh, chapter 11, the verses before the ones that we just read, Jesus, um, and I'm giving you some background here, um, Jesus was here at this little village. The violence in Jerusalem where he was at that time, that, that mob that surrounded him and yelled at him and, and was ready to, they were so angry with him, they're ready to pick up rocks. And keep in mind, they're in the temple now. So these are stones that are being used to build God's temple. And they want to pick those same stones up and throw them at God himself in flesh. Okay? 
so angry and there's such a violent reaction jesus has to escape from jerusalem because it's not time for him to go to the cross yet okay it's december on our calendar and so it's winter time john says expressly it was winter and he has to leave and go uh, about one day's journey to another bethany there's this, there's two bethany's there's one called beyond the jordan and there's the bethany here where he raises lazarus okay So let me flip that back there. So imagine you're one of his disciples. You have seen this person. These people really, really. So they go across the Jordan, and uh, and it. That where John the Baptist, how many of you have heard of him? That's where he started his ministry in that little town. Okay, and there's a lot of water there. In fact, you can go on Google and you can look that up, Bethany beyond the Jordan, and you can actually see some pictures of the place where they think John the Baptist. Some ruins there, a little pool of water, and some stone steps and things that go in there. Okay. And Jesus started his ministry there as well. They started baptizing together in conjunction. There's a lot of history behind that, which I won't get into. <clears throat> but Jesus, it's almost like a full loop. He's sort of just ending his ministry in that same place. Now, what John tells us is that there were this message comes up, and so you've got very family, very welcoming, in Jesus, and you're one of his disciples. Which place would you rather be, in Jerusalem or in Bethany beyond the Jordan? So as chapter 11 starts, it makes it clear to us the disciples didn't want to go. A messenger had come from Bethany. The Southern Bethany, which you can see how close it is to Jerusalem right here, very close. It's only two miles distant, okay? And uh, on the map, it's kind of separated further. It's not really to scale. It's separated further than there really are. It's, right, it's almost, as we would say today, a suburb. It's almost a suburb of Jerusalem, okay? A messenger comes from here to here to tell Jesus that his close friend Lazarus is very, very sick on the point of dying and you can see on this this here it's about a day's journey so it took the messenger about a day okay i believe that that uh it by the time the messenger had already left and was beyond recall lazarus died okay so it took him a day to get there and the text tells us that because jesus loved mary and martha he went right away okay he stayed two days where he was Kind of an odd re response, isn't it? You, you, well, Jesus, don't you love Martha, Martha Mary? Hey. Yes, he does. But he he well, has a larger purpose in play, right? So he stays two days, and then he says to his disciples, okay, let's go back to Judea. Lord, don't you remember they're going to kill you? <laughs> don't you remember that violent confrontation, that mob, that angry mob? And anyway, the Lord says, yeah, we're going to go. And Thomas has a strange thing. He says, well, we'll fine, we'll go and die with you, effectively. Okay. But that's all background behind what's happening here. So our text here, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb how many days? Four days. Okay. It's a day for the messenger to get there, two days that he waited, and another day to come. That's four days. Why do you wait that long? If you read chapter 11, and I encourage you to do that on your own, notice how many times John tells you, oh, by the way, Lazarus was dead. He was dead four days. He was in the tomb. He stinks. Oh, did I, did I mention that Lazarus was dead? They say it over and over and over. Why? Because it has to be beyond doubt that the man was dead. He can't be unconscious. He can't be in a coma. He can't just, you know... You ever heard of an Irish wake, right? It's a practice that they started 
many centuries ago because some people appeared to be dead who really weren't. So they'd lay your body out for a few days just to be sure you didn't come to. Okay? This wasn't a wake. Okay? The Jews knew he was dead. He'd been dead for four days. The evidence when they opened the tomb was the smell. You can't, you can't hide that. There's no, there's no, only death makes that smell. So he would have been dead four days, and, and Jesus knew this, of course. But Bethany was near Jerusalem. Two miles off were important. Why did he wait? Well, he waited for two reasons. Number one is to make sure Lazarus was dead. There's another reason as well, and that's in that next verse there. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. If Jesus had shown up right away, even if Lazarus was dead, he'd raise him. It wouldn't have been the crowd there, the audience that, that, that was there when you allow a few days for people in Jerusalem. Martha, you see, Martha and Mary were, were wealthy. Okay? In fact, Martha's always mentioned first. We think she was the oldest one. We also think, um, I, I think, because it's always referred to as Martha's house, that Martha owned the place. And as that they were well connected, they were a wealthy family, and they were well known in Jerusalem. And a lot of very influential people in Jerusalem knew them. And so they came and allowed enough time for the oh, the word to get, oh, Lazarus is dead. Okay, oh man, he was a great guy. And let me, you know, let me wrap up things here today in my business. I'll shut down the shop and tomorrow I'll be there, right? Just like today, you can't just drop everything, right? You, you plan for a funeral, and even somebody really close, you need a little lead time. So it needs enough lead time. The crowd comes. Four days is enough time to get a very large, influential crowd of people from Jerusalem there to see what's going to happen. So many of the Jews came. And then verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, now it gets personal. And we're talking about this big crowd. It comes down to Martha. I mean, she went and met him. But Mary remained in the house. I think Mary probably knew. Mary was there to... to console the people and, and kind of deal with that. But Martha was always the go-getter. She was the one always welcoming other people in and the, and the master is, is coming. Okay? So let's go. Let's go. And she went to, to, to see him. And then verse 21 says, and I, I titled this Martha what? Confront. At first I was saying has a conversation with Jesus. That's not really what's happening. Martha's Martha. She's angry. She's hurt. She's, she's sad, but she's also a little ticked that he didn't come. In fact, Mary, we're not going to talk about it, but you keep reading it. Mary also has the same reaction. And so also do all the Jews. If, if this, could this man who opened the eyes of the blind two chapters earlier in chapter 9, could he, if he had come, could he not have healed Lazarus? Right? Everybody yeah. has the same thought. Jesus, what took you so long? Why didn't you come in time? So here comes Martha, and she says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But there's some disappointment too. Right? Can I say that when God doesn't work the way you want, roll with it? Yeah, he knows what's best. Let me tell you what God's sovereignty means. God's sovereignty means that you would choose what God has chosen for you if you knew what he knows. So when God brings you through a tough time, and listen, everybody in this room, some of you guys haven't lived long enough yet. You've already had some pain in your life and other things I understand that, but there's still more pain coming. If you live on this earth long enough, you're going to have some things happen to you that's really going to rattle your world. Okay? Let God be God. It's okay. Let him be God. Okay? Beyond the vision of Mary and Martha, God has a bigger plan in play, right? He's going to take this, this incredibly disastrous situation from their point of view and turn it into the greatest public miracle Jesus ever did. 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. I don't know that she, in fact, it's pretty clear in the text that she didn't expect the resurrection. I don't know what she expects. But here, there's, you can hear her wrestling. There's some, some of the frustration and the doubt. Jesus, why didn't you come? But, but I know that you're bigger in the circumstance. I don't know what you're going to do here, but you're in charge. She says in verse 23, 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. What's her response? Well, we would understand that, right? That's why I say I don't think she under, she expected, she didn't expect Jesus to raise Lazarus because of her response there in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again, the resurrection on the last day. How did she know that? Remember, this is before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? We know that today, right? Yeah, we know all about the resurrection. But how did Martha know that? How did the Old Testament saints know that? Let me just read you a couple quick texts here. Uh, Job 19, 25-27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my in my flesh I shall see God. What he's saying is, even after my body has been decayed, has, after I've died and decayed, yet again I will see in my flesh, I will see God. My Redeemer lives, I'm going to see him. Who, and, and Job really just can't get around this, because listen to how much he says about it. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold him, and not another. Won't be somebody else telling me about it, be my eyes. Well, wait a minute, your eyes are long gone, Job. I'm trying to be gross, but not only are your eyes gone, but your skull, and everything's gone. There's nothing to hold your eyes. How can you have that? Only one answer, resurrection, right? You get a new body. Job knew that. Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament in terms of when it was written, okay? So they knew about resurrection. Martha certainly knew about it. The Jews believed in it, or many of them did. Some did not, but, but most of them did. There's also Daniel 12, 2. Listen to what that says. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's important because Jesus is going to elaborate a little bit on that. that there is a direction for everyone. Larry said the first prayer this morning, right? Everyone's going to be resurrected. My, my wife and I were talking about this one time, and she was kind of surprised. I only thought, only thought believers would get a new body. No, no. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're going to get a new body. But it will be suited for where you will spend eternity, which is not going to be heaven. No. We're going to look at that. That's why I say there's, we, we have a lot of joy here with the resurrection, but there's a warning with it as well. Okay. So Martha knew her Bible. She knew there was a resurrection. In the future, in the future, Jesus, in the future, I know in the last day, like with Job and with Daniel and all these other Old Testament saints we're talking about, in the future, he'll be resurrected sometime way. Jesus said to her, what? I will be resurrected. He says, I am. Is that present tense or future tense? That's present tense. I am now, today, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is really where we want to be in terms of the main point of, of the message this morning. Okay? There's a lot wrapped up in what Jesus, first of all, I want you to, to see here, who is saying this? Jesus. This isn't just your, your close friend. No. This isn't some podunk nobody from, this isn't some politician who's running for office, promising to save the world, which belongs only to God. And he's not going to share his glory with any politician. Right. He will share that glory of saving the world only with those who are in Christ. Okay? So this isn't just anybody, you know, making wild, wild predictions. This is Jesus himself, whom Paul says laid aside his equality with God, his right to be worshipped, and the glories of heaven to take on flesh and to become one of us. Okay? Second thing I want you to notice here is, 
I am is present tense. There's a lot wrapped up in that I am. This is one of the, I forget which one in the, in the count that this is. I think this is the third one now. Um, there's seven I am statements, significant I am statements in John. And this is one of those. And the, the phrase I am actually uh, refers to the Old Testament name for God in Exodus chapter 3. This is claiming divinity here. Okay. So it's present tense. Is to, he is claiming to have this power and authority equal to God. And he says here now two things, the resurrection and the life. Does anybody see a problem? Well, look at what he says further. Whoever lives, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What's the problem? Well, which one is it, Jesus? If I believe in you, you say, even though I die, I'll live again. But then you turn right around and you say, if I believe in you, I'll never die. Do I die or do I not die? What do you think? Is Jesus stuttering? Is he in contradiction? Actually, what he's doing here, these two verses, as far as I can tell, <clears throat> I've never, I tried to look this up. I haven't found anybody, commentators. I mean, they're not out there, just limited time. Maybe I'd find it eventually. But as far as I can tell, this is the exact center of the Gospel of John. John is 21 chapters. Okay, half of 20 is 10. Half of the one is half. This is about halfway through 11. So we're right at about the center point of the Gospel of John. In this short statement, these two verses, Jesus gives us the entire plan of redemption. Okay. Let me break it down for you. He's not stuttering. Okay. If you think, okay, you think they mean the same thing, it's going to be confusing. But the knot come, becomes untangled very easily when you start to say, well, wait a, wait a minute, maybe they mean two different things. And together, they express a larger reality than the two do individually. That's what's happening, actually. Okay. What do I mean by synonymous? I'm going to give you one quick example. Uh, you're a kid, right? You're a little kid. And you ever have anybody come up to you and say, in fact, we were talking this at, at breakfast, right? And when I was a little boy, I remember, the, you know, you had, still had your baby pudgy cheeks, right? And you look cute. And you didn't think you looked cute, you know, but you, you had a stupid tie on and all this. And mommy casted your hair down. And then these old ladies come up to you. Oh, come on, give me some sugar. Sugar? I don't know about sugar. What does that mean? Give me some sugar. Huh? Give me a kiss. Okay. So you look at him kind of strange, and she realizes, oh, he didn't know what I mean. Come here, give me a kiss. No. Now I know. <laughs> now I know. That's a synonymous statement, right? It's two different words, right? Give me some sugar, give me a kiss, but they mean the same thing, right? That's a synonymous. If you think that when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, that those are synonymous, then it's going to be confusing. If you don't think that they are, rather that they are, the term is synthetic, okay? In other words, that they build on one another, they add to one another to together produce a greater truth, then you'll begin to understand what Jesus is really saying. So let's break this down for a second. It's hard to see up on the screen here, but that's purple. I almost made it red, but I want to go with the theme. Okay, uh, that's purple. That little plus sign I put there on purpose. Okay, because in the Greek, that that word and this is purple here as well. This and right there, if you look it up uh, in Strong's Accords, I think it is, says it has cumulative force. How many like math? Let's put your hand up. Come on, Brian. I know you like math. Okay, now we're okay with it. Yeah. Mr. Humble back there. Yeah, he's don't let him fool you. Um, all right. Cumulative means what? 
adds two. It's related to the word accumulate, right? To add two. That, that sounds like some mountain talk. To add two. Okay. In addition to. In addition to. If you have an, where's Larry? If you have an accumulation of snow, there's snow already on the ground and there's more coming, right? That and is a cumulative word, meaning the first statement, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live, is added to. It's not to clarify or to, um, to express again the next statement. It's added to it, right? So even if you die, you shall live again. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. What he's doing here, look at the word order. What he's doing here is he's taking this word resurrection, and he's explaining what that means. Whoever lives in me, though he or believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live again. Anybody who believes in Jesus, who accepts and receives the testimony that he says about himself, okay, and, and surrenders to him as Lord, will be resurrected. Will live again. Okay. So he's taking this summary statement, which is the entire plan of salvation. The source of it and the results of it. And he's expanding it out a little bit. So this is the resurrection. That is, whoever believes in me will die. But that's not all. Cumulative. And also, in addition to that, is the life. And then it's this next statement that expresses that. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. If you're still thinking that that means physical death, you're going to miss it. It's two resurrections that he's talking about. Okay, let me show that to you. Go back to chapter five for a minute. In chapter chapter five, John is John is a very profound gospel. Everybody agree? Yeah. One of the most important books in our New Testament. I don't say anything. <clears throat> It's hard to pick your favorite verse, your favorite book, it would be the one you're in, right? Um, but in chapter, chapter, John is full of all kinds of really, the most famous verse in the Bible is in, is in John. John 3.16, chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus, right? The cleansing of the temple, the first time is in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, it's got the famous, uh, uh, you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And everybody knows about that one. And then we got John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. You know, I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you to myself. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Lots of famous chapters in John, but John 5 is so important for understanding the rest of John. It's probably the most undersung chapter. Because in chapter 5, Jesus gives to the to the Jewish leaders, and by extension to us, some clarity and expansion of what he summarizes here in this statement by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he means. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We always talk about believing in Jesus, but Jesus was always pointing us to, to whom? The Father. You don't like me, all right. Uh, at least believe what has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That statement that's in bold, what do you think it means by that? The hour is coming and is now here. Well, it means that something is going to be happening in the future. And oh, by the way, it's already started. What Jesus is saying is, whatever I'm about to tell you has already started when he's saying that. Well, what's he going to say? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Huh? When I first read that, I was a little confused. I was like, wait a minute, but we haven't started receiving our new bodies. Well, that's because I was thinking that they were synonymous and not synthetic. What Jesus is saying here in that verse right there is that there is first a spiritual resurrection. You must, what he meant when he talked to Nicodemus about, you must be born again. You see, we don't, we tend, 
I think all of us have been in church at some point, right? Some more than others, whatever. That's good. If that's your limit of the gospel, you don't understand the gospel. Because you're not good at the door and you enter heaven, you're going to start sinning again, and now you're out. Because the problem with your sin is not what you do and say and think. The problem with your sin is your heart. Your heart. You sin because you have a nature to sin. You and I are born in Adam the first time with a nature to sin. God has to solve the heart of the problem. And I'm a technologist, and in technology we call we call that the root cause. I see the symptoms out here. Okay, I see this behavior. The software is acting weird. What's the root cause? What's really causing this, right? <clears throat> and some of you in technology, you know, it can take time to troubleshoot and, 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 and figure it out. Okay, get to the root cause. The root cause of our sin is our heart. And that's what he's promising to save here or to solve. And ours coming and now is when dead. Now look how he describes us. We're born in this world, Paul says in Ephesians, that we who are dead in trespasses and sins, God made alive. Right? So we're born. The dead will hear the voices. No, notice there's no qualification. I didn't say some of the dead. It's all the dead. Okay? And those who hear will live. So it's, the problem is not that Jesus isn't speaking or that God's word isn't available. The problem is we can't hear it. If you can hear the voice of the Son of God, you are blessed. You are blessed because not everyone can. In fact, most can. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, he has granted also the Son to have life in himself. The Son emptied himself completely of his, of his <clears throat> rights to be God, and God the Father has given him these things. Right? Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. He's given him two things. He's given, he's given Jesus. Now, Jesus has the power and authority to give yeah. life of both kinds, both spiritual life and physical life, to raise the dead spiritually and to raise the dead physically. Jesus has that ability. And by given that by the authority of the Father, he's also been given the authority to judge. And when the time is right, the second part is going to happen. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. It doesn't say an hour is coming and now is. It says an hour is coming. This is still future. And all who are what? How does he describe them? In the tombs. Interesting. The first time he said the dead, he didn't say in the tombs. Why? Because he's referring to spiritual death. First time. You don't. There's no spiritual tomb, right? There's a tomb for your body, but not for your spirit. So in the first time when he says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, he's referring to spiritual death. The second time here, he says all those who are in the tombs, their bodies are dead and buried. And an hour is coming in the future when all who are, all, all, how many is all? That's you. That's everybody in this room. Everyone. One day we'll get up out of their tent. Because he has that kind of power. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. That is power. Can you imagine? How many of you have ever been to a, a viewing and seen the body? That's kind of you know, weird. It's kind of like, especially if you knew the person in life, they don't quite, sometimes they're like, is that the right person? The, in death, they don't look. But it's weird. It's kind of sitting there, and you kind of expect them to sort of stir, wake up, you know. Death is very powerful. Not powerful enough for him. He has the power to overcome it. And everyone, everyone in the tombs will hear it. Uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Yes. There's only two options. Life or judgment. So let's go back to our verse, our two verses. And let's restate this, okay? <clears throat> in the Greek, <clears throat> what I've done is I've taken the full sense of what we just read in chapter 5. I've added to it. The Greek, and I've tried to put it together in my own words 
in English so that it kind of reads well, but also as close to the Greek as I know how to do it. I'm not a Greek scholar, but you can do this yourself. There's all kinds of apps for your phone or other things. You can look words up in the Greek if you want to know, or Greek or Hebrew. I'll, I'll be happy to share the apps with you. It's very easy to do. What Jesus is saying here in our two verses this morning is this. I, even I myself, am the standing up in resurrection. That's really what that literally means in resurrection. The, you know, resuscitation, what, you know. No, it means a standing up in the Greek, okay? It means to stand up again. Dead people don't stand up again, okay? It's a revitalization of the body. I myself am the standing up in resurrection in addition, you're the accumulation, to the life. Those two words, uh, the, are both there in the Greek, the definite article, the resurrection. The life. There isn't any other. There's nobody else out there raising the dead and giving them life. Anyone having full faith and confidence in me, even if dead or dying, will live again. Additionally, all those who have, have faith and confidence in me have now passed permanently from death into life and shall not by any means. It's a, it's a strong negative in the Greek. Shall not by any means pass back over into death. <laughs> you catch that? Some people <clears throat> say, you know, can I lose my salvation? Not according to this verse. Because if you believe in Jesus, if you truly believe, and you have, what he's saying is, in combination with what he said in chapter 5 and what he's saying here, you have, you have crossed over from the condition of death to a condition of, in most places, it doesn't in our verses, but in most places it's called eternal life. Not, I used to think that meant eternal in duration, but what he means is eternal in state. It's life that never becomes unlife. It never drifts back into death. Once you enter that state of being, you will never die again. That's what eternal life means. It doesn't mean existing forever. It means living forever in, a, in that particular state of life. And it's called the eternal life. It's the state. It's the only way you can get there. And then this last is a good question for us. Do you place your full faith and credit? Do you give, it's, it's, it's a, that Greek word is related to the word credit, right? <clears throat> to give credit to somebody? Yeah. It's, it's an honor, right? And it's a trust that you put in there. Look at Mar Martha's response. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. When you're standing in the presence of someone who has just stated in two verses the entire plan of God's redemption, you realize that you're swimming in waters that are a little deeper than your intellectual prowess can plummet. Jesus shows off. A simple and yet profound statement. The depth and the wisdom of the mind of God in that. And, and, and this is the only appropriate response. Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust you. I believe in you. I trust you. I believe the testimony about you. Let me, let me get down to the real point of it. It's not enough to believe in a Jesus. There's a lot of fake Jesus is out there, okay? Many of them flying under Christian labels and flags. <clears throat> a lot of them have books in the bookstore, okay? It's, listen, it's not even enough to believe the facts about the true Jesus. It's not enough for you to say a magic prayer. This is not magic. Christianity, real Christianity is not magic. It's truth. And you believe it or you don't. Magic doesn't care about the about the personal life of the practitioner as long as you. How many of you have seen Harry Potter, right? You know, just pronounce the spell correctly. If you have the wand and you have the 
the ability, you're not, you're not a mobile or something, right? You have the little ability, and as long as you say, just right, you know, and it happens. That's magic. Magic doesn't care if you're the Dark Lord or Harry Potter. But we're not talking about magic. We're talking about truth. And truth is the, is the, is the way that God communicates who he is because the power of God is accessed by faith. You can't just say the right prayer and poof, it happens because God isn't fooled. He's not, he's not blind magic that just, oh, you said the thing and I've got to do it. No, God knows your heart. And if you aren't surrendering to him, if you don't answer like Martha did from your heart, yes, I'm not just saying magic words, but yes, I really believe in you, Jesus. I believe you are who you say you are. Even I don't fully understand everything but I need to believe in you and respond to you and come to you personally, not say a magic prayer, but, but respond to you from my heart and call out to you and direct my prayer to you, okay? He knows in, in your heart when you do that, and that's what activates the power. It's not the magic in the words. So you can say those words that Martha says, but if your heart isn't in it, isn't fooled by that. Okay. So the same question is for us. Do you believe this? Luke 12, 58 says, <clears throat> as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you into to judgment and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. All of us are under the sentence of God's holy justice. Every one of us have violated God's holy justice. And you don't really need anybody to tell you that, do you? You know, even if you justify it later, well, I have a right to be say what I said to her because of what she said to me. When nobody else is around, you're kicking yourself. Oh, I should have said that. Right? Because you know what you said was wrong. The way you responded was wrong. What you thought was wrong. You know, I was talking to our daughter, Sabrina, yesterday. <clears throat> she wanted to do something that I could tell. I'm no dad. I could tell. She knew what she was saying was wrong. And we, we talked to her about it, but I confronted her about it. I said, no, no, it's just not right. No, it's your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. It's what God says, right? Because it's his justice that matters. He's the one, he's the one that determines which kind of body you get. He has the power, not you. You don't just wave your wand and say, that you said, and now you got the body you want. No, he's going to give you a body one day that's going to be fit for wherever you're going. And here's the good news. What, what Jesus is saying there in Luke 12 is not applied directly to this, but it's the same principle in, in effect. You're on your way to court. You're going to see the judge. Don't you think now you should settle up? God has given you an opportunity, and I've given us an opportunity in this life to make it right with him before we get to court. There's an offer of peace on the table this morning between you and God. Are you going to take it? Do you believe it? Or are you going to leave it there? Then go back, go back to uh, chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Has that, that life, that eternal life. You get a change of heart. And guess when it starts? Not after you die, it starts now. There's a resurrection that happens now. Your resurrection can happen this morning. If it hasn't already, it can happen now. The power is not in the words necessarily, but in the truth and the God behind it. And the, and the invitation is there. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You hear that? Finality? Once you have been raised spiritually and been given a new heart, it's permanent. It never goes back. I don't have time to read all that. Let me just say this, this last little bit of what Paul writes. Look at that. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God promises an eternal state, but only for those who are in him. Just as in Adam all die, so in Christ you'll all be made alive, right? You're born of this world spiritually dead. In Christ you can be resurrected from the dead spiritually. 
And then verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, it's talking about our bodies, and the mortal put on immortality. That's a strong theme in a lot of movies, right? The, the immortals. <laughs> no, what does that mean? I can't kill them. What if I cut off your head? Immortality means just that, can't be done. Okay. What Paul is saying in the future, our, our, our mortal, our bodies that do die, will put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? Or your victory, O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And thanks be to God who what? Gives us the victory. You can't do this for yourself. You can't be good enough. No, I can I can do it. God will be pleased with me. No, because the problem is not what you're doing and saying. The problem is you. You're born in a condition you can't change. You're born in Adam. But only Jesus has the authority and the power to change that. And he says, he promises in our verse, I think that's the end of it. He promises in our verse to do that for all of those who believe in him. Come to him. Put your full faith and credit in Christ. Stop playing around. Make it right with God before you die. You don't know when you're going to die. I, I remember a few years ago, we had, um, we've had our BBS every year. In that room right behind David, <clears throat> I was teaching the youth class, and there was a young man in there who was, we were going through the gospel, and there was a young man in there that came every night, and every night he was kind of the class clown, kind of mocked me, you know, but do it in a, way, in, a, in a subtle way to try to make as if I don't know those tricks, you know, because I haven't tried them myself, <laughs> okay? I'll never forget this, because next year, when BBS rolled around again, where is he? Oh, he died. He was 14 years old. You don't know when you're going to die. You better make peace before it's too late. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful promises because the tomb of the Lord Jesus is empty that validates the payment that he made for our sin. And it also means that the same power that resurrected Christ and gave him a new body will also one day, Paul, in that we don't have time to read it, but he calls it the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. He's, he's what our bodies will be like if we're in him and we believe in him. Jesus, we don't even know sometimes the right words to say, but that's okay. Because if we truly desire, truly desire this offer of peace and we want to be resurrected, and we want, we come to the end of ourselves and stop trying to be be good and, and, and to cover up the reality and the stench of what I really am. And instead, we come to the, to the end of ourselves. That's when your grace begins. And we thank you that when after we have reached the end of our hoarded resources, God's Amen. full grace has only begun. And so, Father, you know the heart of each person here. And in, in this crowd here, I guarantee there's some that Maybe you're fooling around. Some that are even deceived and don't know. This is a great time to really get alone with you and just to really say, do I have this life? Jesus' question is still appropriate for everyone in this room. Do you believe this? Do your work in hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.